This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in Film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Mark Eckersley. Mark has cut features including Dread, Filth, The Woman in Black 2, and Wild Rose, among others. He has also edited episodes of the fantastic TV shows The Crown, Black Mirror, and Peaky Blinders. Today, we're discussing his movie The Aeronauts for director Tom Harper. I saw it in the theater, but it will also be available on Amazon Prime Video December 20th of 2019. Mark, you've done a few features with Tom before, but you and he started out working on short films together, right? Exactly. Like, he's the person I've probably got the longest relationship with is that we started doing short films together when I was an assistant editor and a VFX editor. We used to kind of nip in on the weekends and use cutting rooms to kind of edit his shorts where we'd just be doing it for free, you know, for free. I'd be working during the week as an assistant and a VFX editor and then going in on Saturdays and Sundays working with Tom uh, on his short films. And then I did a couple of shorts with him and then one of those Cubs did really well and won some awards. And then he hung on to me, which is great when he went and did a TV pilot and then we did a low budget feature together. And so we kind of still pinch ourselves, you know, a bit now when we're sitting in there doing a decent budget film, it's, it's great. <laughs> you know, 10 years later, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty special. It's actually through um, a lady at film four who put us in touch. I was actually assisting on a, on a film called brothers of the head, which uh, film four were producing a friend of ours called Geraldine O'Flynn who's a kind of become a good friend who she said, oh, one of my friends is doing a short, directing a short and has written it, and they're looking for an editor. Um, and obviously they didn't have any money and there was kind of goodwill required, really. And we got to know each other on this film, Brothers of the Head, and she said, oh, do you want to go meet Tom uh, just in a cafe in North London? And I said, yeah, great. And, you know, I was at that stage where I was trying to make the transition from assisting to editing. It's an incredibly hard chasm to get across. You know, it's this, everyone assistants now ask me, "Oh, how do you how do you make the leap?" And it's, it's people can tell you how to do it, but there's a thousand different stories, and you just have to kind of, you know, keep doing the shorts, keep trying different avenues, see what works. And and with Tom, uh, this short with Tom just caught and kind of uh, got some attention, and then from that, I kind of managed to stop assisting and start full time mm-hmm. editing. Really. Uh, well, it's not the first time I've heard this story. I just talked to somebody. Oh, the guy that edited Moonlight. Um, a couple yeah. of years ago, and he just edited a new film. And he said the same thing where he was trying to break in 
you know, switch from assisting to editing. And he went to Sundance and like watched a bunch of shorts and found a director that he thought was really awesome and went up and talked to them after a screening and said, if you need somebody to edit, I'm your person. And uh, wow. that's how that's how he got uh, the connection with the editor that he worked with on his last film was a short. Right. That's, that's, that's impressive. Like kind of cold calling people at festivals. Yeah, I thought so <laughs> too. Really good. But you know, he did it also based on a film that he really loved. Like he felt yeah. passionate, like this is a really good director. I would love to work with them instead of just going, yeah. let me just talk to anybody who will hire me. Right. Yes. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's even more special, isn't it? If you, if you admire someone's work and then, get an opportunity to work with them. That's fantastic. Yeah. So much social media stuff. I see people say, Oh, you know, you can't work for free and all these Craigslist, you know, obviously Craigslist is a different story, but all these people that want you to work for free, it's not worth it. But then somebody like you, you know, you've got a bunch of huge, great films with this director because you were willing to work on a short film. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, and, and it's that thing where, you know, I was just, it, was, it was hard because I was had a day job during the week. I was, you know, working on uh, Danny Boyle's film Sunshine as a VFX editor. And then, at the, you know, on Sundays, we'd kind of edit the short as well. So it was, it was, it was a tiring time. It's nice, nice to be just doing it during the week rather than the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> You're privilege. not trying to pick up any work on short films in the meantime? While it, like, not at the moment, no, for moment. sure. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to talk about, and also this. I think that's good to leave to two assistants. You know, that's kind of how they learn and how they get stuck in. And people say, "What? Well, how do you learn about editing?" But I think you just need to get at the cold face and do it and make mistakes and learn about it through that. Really, there's there's nothing. There's no better learning curve than, yeah. than that. Really, you walk in on a Monday morning and see there's like a new project on your on your uh, avid projects folder, and you're like, "What's this?" It's and it's the assistant's <laughs> latest short <Yeah>. film. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's a good sign, I think, rather than a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, I would think so too. Um, I really love this film. It was uh, beautiful, oh, thanks. And beautifully, beautifully edited, and beautiful. And I have a, I have ten pages of notes here. <laughs> I wrote down in the dark of watching the movie. Um, Especially was- stunning, though. Isn't it? I think George, George, the DOP, and the VFX guys. You know, they all pulled pulled the stops out and did a spectacular job on it. I think it's a visual feast, which is kind of part of the reason I was attracted to it. Obviously, as well as Tom, I've worked with a lot, but I just thought, oh, this could be visually spectacular. Yeah, and it was visually spectacular. I was really intrigued by the pace changes. I think of editing as you probably or you may do as very musical, where there's dynamics and you, you can't can't just have things going at 11th constantly. Talk to me about the pace mm-hmm. changes from the excitement of the launch of the balloon at the beginning to the very kind of, uh, then it kind of goes to kind of a stately pace. Once they get up in the air, it's like, oh, now we're mm-hmm. just going to float here for a while, right? You know, there's, there's, yeah. there's pacing differences. So you get all this excitement, then you get, now we're going to be slower for a little bit. Then we're going to have some more excitement and speed changes. Yes. Is it, evident from the shooting from the script what makes you change the the pace and, and rhythm of your edit yeah i think it was it was kind of inherent in the script that but then it was also a conscious decision to try and give people time in the skies and actually that's that's very easy once you've got the final shots there it's trickier when you're just looking at a, at a blue screen of like you know how long how long do we want to stare at this blue screen for and how long do we want the shot to be is a tricky thing and that's that's the kind of uh, learning curve of visual effects is 
it's pacing just when there's absolutely nothing there or the roughest attempts of, you know, when you're just dealing with a, an animatic or a previous, it's very hard to pace precisely of kind of how long you want to hang on a shot in the sky. But, but the kind of, the momentum at the beginning of the film, I think, was in the script there, really. I think in the DNA of the script was just getting people into this fair and up in the sky as soon as possible. Because obviously there's an alternate version of the film, which is kind of would tell all the all the backstories first and then get into the sky. There's a very much a desire to kind of get everyone into this 19th century uh, spectacle and, and, and carried away with the balloon and, and then tell the story in real time. So actually... One facet of it is that all the flashbacks actually um, obviously interrupt the balloon flight, but actually the whole balloon flight is actually told in real time so that the length of the film is actually approximately exactly the length of, of you know, a real balloon flight at that time. So that was part of it was um, and, and yeah, and giving that energy to things at the beginning, getting everyone swept up in it and then having a bit of time to, to sit down and, and relax once we're up in the sky. Did the original shooting script actually have uh, a much different structure than the final film? No, it did in terms of where the flashbacks occurred. So it was always, um, it was in the script that it started with the fair and we went up into the sky and then we went back to revisit the backstory of, of James and Amelia and how they how they got to meet each other and how, how the balloon flight came about. So that was always written into the script but we did te- we, we played quite a lot in post-production about exactly how much of the flashbacks you wanted and when and kind of which bits of information and how much you could how much you're willing to go back to the ground for that originally they were passed out kind of more evenly through the whole film so actually there were flashbacks much later on and in the process of kind of test screens and actually Ted Hope from Amazon early on said oh are we not better to kind of get on with all the flashbacks early and then you know let Amelia and James just take flight and enjoy the flight for the last kind of three quarters of an hour and through test screenings that, that kind of became apparent that was that was the right way to go and that you kind of wanted more backstory, you wanted more front-loaded backstory so you got to know the characters a bit more at the front and then you could just enjoy the flight. So that was but every, probably every test screening had a slightly different roll of the dice in terms of the flashbacks and exactly how much backstory we wanted and, and the early screenings we had People felt they didn't get to know James enough. They actually wanted a bit more of Eddie Redmayne's character. So actually, there were some pickup uh, days done, extra shooting of kind of building his backstory and, and meeting his parents a bit more and his kind of altercation with the Royal Society. So there was some extra shooting done to flesh out his backstory and just just help people engage with him earlier. Because I think Amelia was a was a very rich character already, you know, and was very engaging. And James was more subtle as a character. So I think people wanted a bit more information about him and a bit more, you know, emotional background to him. Uh, so we, we that, that changed as we went along. My next note after talking about the pacing is something you brought up already, which is when you're doing a film that is so visually stunning and you're like, wow, I just want to look at the clouds or look at this beautiful location that's all the effects. So you're looking at a, like a green screen and it is very difficult to pace. Were you post visiting it inside the Avid? Did you have somebody else doing that or were you just using the green screen and guessing? 
Yeah, um, initially, literally, just you, you know, using the blue screen and guessing, and then we did have some so a visual effects artists working with us in the casting room. So it's just an evolving process where initially it was literally nothing, and you were kind of just in a total guessing game about what was there, and then that process evolved where we'd get temps done that were kind of halfway there, and then temps which are much more evolved, and then towards the end of the process, you'd obviously get a much better sense of exactly what the shot was going to be, and you know, Framestore was were giving us some great temps, and so you could get a sense sense of oh, how long you want to you know hang out just looking at nothing <laughs> just looking at the clouds and enjoying the, the quiet as well uh there's a great scene that is they as they take off and there's a storm and some mayhem that takes place while mm-hmm. they're kind of passing through the cloud layer can you talk to me about cutting that in the shot selection because you're in this balloon gondola which is very small and close quarters mm-hmm. so all of your shots are very tight you don't have a lot to yeah, you can't pull back out much. I don't know what was what were your shots and and what was your approach to that kind of uh, storm scene. Yeah, I mean it was interesting. I mean to go back a, a step. Kind of Tom's idea behind it was try not to have kind of two magical camera positions. Obviously, it's got a kind of um, epic fairy tale feel to it but it's we we all talked about George talked about rooting it in reality so that we wouldn't do the kind of magic realism camera you know cameras and also you've got to watch yourself obviously in visual effects because anything is possible you know you can put the camera anywhere get it to move in any way so actually you need to have a real discipline about not getting carried away with camera positions and how cameras move where they fly and what they can do so there was a we tried to preserve a discipline of could you actually have really shot that? <laughs> if you actually shot it, it would have to be shot from a helicopter. So there was a restriction on how close the helicopter could get to the balloon. If there was a camera position in the balloon, it would, okay, what physically could a cameraman, a, a daredevil cameraman do in terms of, okay, they'd either be in the cap, in the basket with Felicity and Eddie, or they'd be potentially climbing up a rope or hanging off on a rope off the balloon. But we didn't want to have any magical cameras you know, effectively chopping through the ropes or, you know, chopping through the balloon that in the best case scenario, you could feasibly get a camera in that position. So I suppose that was the overriding idea behind all the camera positions. And then also Tom very much felt in terms of the editing style that he didn't want it to be a very fast cut, you know, more documentary reality style aesthetic. He much more wanted to kind of live with the characters in the balloon and have longer shots for us to be a bit more disciplined about when we chose to cut rather than necessarily cutting as much as you would in a, in a normal film is to try and allow those pauses you would get in, in the natural flow of events inside the balloon, the natural flow of conversation rather than necessarily always cutting for pace or speeding up that actually you'd get a sense of just existing in the basket with the character. So that was a thing we spent a reasonable amount of time on was just getting that right of how much, time you wanted to exist with the characters and how much times you wanted to accelerate things and move things forward. I really love some of the sound atmospheres while they're in the basket. I'm talking a little about sound and sound design and. Yeah. I mean, Lee, Lee Walpole was our supervising sound and sound designer who did a fantastic job on it. You know, he did a lot of very you know detailed research and, and kind of uh, signed up for a lot of, you know, uh, organizations who specialize in recording set, recording wind and the sound of air things like that, that, that actually, I think what impressed me was the spareness of it, that obviously it would have been quite easy to overcrowd the film with sound. And actually, I thought he did a fantastic, and Boom did a fantastic job of um, allowing a space in there that's, there's nothing there. And actually, 
Stephen Price, the composer, also uh, moved into the area where he was using a lot of instrumentalist blowing over mouthpieces and the sound of the air and, and trying to weave the score. And, and he had a, a discipline where he only wanted to use wind instruments when we were in the air. And so the string instruments would, would be while we were on the ground. But actually, while we're in the air, he's just written a, a, a wind and brass score, which is, I thought was absolutely beautiful. But a lot of that comes out of the wind and, you know, floats on the wind and then and then dissipates on the wind as well. So it was very much him him and Lee kind of working together about that sound of the wind and how the music would drift out of that and decay into it. It was great to sit in the mix with them and listen to everything. It's fantastic. Uh, I noticed a bunch of really nice pre-laps. I mean, I suppose inherently the film is kind of two different timelines, or actually when you break it apart, it's even more than that. Obviously, we've got the journey, which is obviously the kind of hero story. Then we've got on the ground, which is kind of what's going on at the ground simultaneously with the balloon flight, so Amelia's sister and the Royal Society, and then also all their backstories, so James's backstory, Amelia's backstory, and then her kind of psychological trauma in the past. It looks quite simple, but actually when you break it down, it's actually quite a complicated structure, (laughs) and there are quite a lot of different timelines to jump between. So hopefully it presents as a kind of classic adventure, but when you break it down, it's actually got a lot of different storylines that you're dipping into. So actually... We wanted to kind of bind those together and give it a, a kind of, all, you know, more of an organic feel jumping between them. So sound would very much help with that. And the prelapse, prelapse obviously gives you a, a kind of forward momentum, which is helpful in terms of just, you know, carrying you forward into the next scene. But we were we were aware we wanted to use those just to, to, to kind of try and organically bind all those bits together, which could have been felt very disparate and uh, separate. Really. Yeah. I like there's a really nice choice. Um, there's a kid is looking through the spyglass and uh, I can't remember the, oh, guy, yeah. the, the Indian guy with the top hat. They look up and you don't cut to like a POV of looking through the telescope. You look at a big wide shot where the balloon is barely visible. <laughs> I love that yes. choice. Uh, can you talk oh, about yeah, that? I mean, was that, that, was, that did, did he shoot something that was a telescope version of that shot? No, no that was a kind of a deliberate plan to kind of keep the – you know, to tell the story of the fragility of the balloon as well is that we we actually wanted to keep the the separation between the ground and the sky, and and keep the fragility of this tiny dot, you know, this fragile dot, which even now, you know, in the 20th century, 21st century would be terrifying, but in 18, you know, in the 1850s was insane, you know, to the, the kind of uh, adventuring spirit and kind of throwing themselves into danger is just awe inspiring. But we we were aware of that kind of trying to preserve that, yeah, the separation between the people on the ground and the sky and then never lose sight of that kind of how tiny, tiny the balloon and the adventures were in relation to the nature and everything else. Yeah, because you start out, you know, the movie starts out and the balloon seems enormous because it's sitting there on the, on the ground. Um, and there's a yeah, really that- nice cut, uh, speaking about sound design, where they're talking and you kind of hear the wind noise, you hear the creaking of the gondola and then you cut wide to kind of see them against a gigantic cloud bank and it's dead silent. Louis Morin, who's of the effects supervisor, went up and did some amazing helicopter flights for real, you know, some high altitude balloon flights and got some great footage. So, I mean, that actually is, you know, is mostly real footage stitched together. So, you know, that's actually a real, you know, high altitude balloon flight. And when we saw some of those rushes, it was just like, oh, we've got to, we've got to use that. 
absolutely fantastic. So, um, you know, some of those, you know, we, we shot a lot of uh, high-res plates and stitched them all together into these very high-resolution images, and some of them were just absolutely sensational. Mm-hmm. So there was very much a sense, oh, we've got to use that and just hang on it, and you can just enjoy it for the for the spectacle that we can we can jump out of the story for a minute and just enjoy the moment really and we were trying to hang on to that you can lose sight of that in all the technical aspects of it of all the vfx and the temp and not having the shots there and it's um but we, we definitely that's something we tried to preserve all the way through when you were uh temping one of the things that i noticed at least in a couple of places was uh using temp often at the end of a scene as a transition into your next scene is that in terms of music or? yeah in t- terms of music i'm sorry yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I think I think um, that was something we initiated, and then also Stephen, you know, obviously has incredibly good instincts about where and when to to bring out music. So we kind of we we left that to his instincts. I don't think we really we maybe disagreed about one or two points of where you know he wanted to bring in pieces maybe a bit earlier, and we were like, oh, you know. But I think broadly, Tom and Stephen and myself all very much agreed about where cues should, you know, where they existed and where they were needed and actually where they weren't needed about actually we can just let this sit and, and just exist on on the wind or, or effects. I'm interested in the discussion that you mentioned about changing some of the, the flashbacks. When Amelia says she's going to abandon him, did you feel like, was that in the script at that point? Did you feel, hey, we need this moment at a specific moment in the balloon flight? I mean, that was probably one of the most interesting kind of up for discussion things that obviously at that point we know that Emilia and Jake are ultimately going to go in the fly, right. <laughs> go on the flight. So it's quite interesting that it's kind of a false jeopardy, but hopefully we, we thought it kind of worked in terms of character, in terms of some of those flashbacks actually just flesh out their relationship and are getting to know the characters much better in their earthbound lives in a way that you don't get from the sky so that in pure story terms, obviously, that's a kind of false jeopardy of that you actually ultimately know they're actually going to go on a balloon flight together. So it's more about kind of um, the effect of Pierre on her, her Pierre, her, you know, her husband who died. And it, it was her kind of coming to terms with that psychologically. So it wasn't, it's not so much a kind of story beat, it's more a kind of, you know, a character moment as well for her. And that was, that was something we talked about is when she, when we would allow her to let go of Pierre, because early on, uh, Pierre existed much later in the in the in the script in the film, but it felt that she was she became a bit burdened with Pierre late on, and she couldn't let him go and then move on and move you know forward in the future with James. So that's part of the reason why we pulled Pierre's story earlier in the film, so that she could deal with that psychological trauma earlier and let go of it, and then be allowed to kind of you know carry on forwards. And 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 it also felt that the, the correct moment for her to uh, get rid of her ghosts and and have done with Pierre was when she ascends the balloon. You know, she does Felicity does that amazing heroic ascent of the, of oh, the film. Yeah. She mo- mostly did herself, which was absolutely amazing. Um, and we felt that was the correct moment for her. You know, through through that climb and saving James, she redeems herself, and and that's the moment that she can then let go of Pierre and her past and move forward. And that was the moment we thought, okay, that's probably around then we want to be done with the flashbacks and allow James and Amelia to get on and enjoy the rest of the flight, really. There's kind of an underwater sound as Eddie's character is hearing her um, try to open the chute. 
that was one thing about his hypoxia was um was and that was a discussion about how subjective we wanted to go inside the character that actually we decided to be quite restrained about that and just obviously there's a there's a slightly different version of it which would be extremely subjective both for um, both for James and Amelia, but we, we kind of cherry picked moments to be very subjective and, you know, slightly hallucinatory with the sound or the, or the images. And, and that was just more about just taking us inside James at that moment and, and really landing the hypoxia for the, for the audience and understanding what that meant really. People didn't instantly get the hypoxia. That was something we had to put some glosses in just a little bits of ADR or little bits of sound design just to nail it. Cause I think initially we were, we were probably a bit too spare with selling that idea. And then we just needed, that was one of those story beats. We just needed to put a little emphasis on and do a bit of ADR and do a bit of, we did some stuff, extra stuff and visual effects of just putting a slight defocus halo kind of a vignette on some shots just to kind of sell the idea that he was slightly, his vision was narrowing and it was kind of, he was losing consciousness. And then, then it was it was amazing how, you know, just a few little bits, just then the all audiences completely got it and the kind of any questions about that went away and people totally understood it. Did Eddie's performance of that that hypoxia, was that something that he played differently, you know, really kind of drunk and or not so so hypoxic, or more hypoxic? Did you have to kind of adjust that throughout the flight to say he's getting worse and he's getting worse or yeah yeah i mean i mean he he does it because he's so kind of good and so on it that you know he knows exactly what he's doing in every moment but so it was it wasn't it was more you know not for the whole flight but through that section as 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 they enter kind of very high altitude yeah we were aware of just how long we needed to hang on him and um just just so you told that story enough so and it was also just you got hints of it to start with and then you kind of started to understand uh, yeah, gradu- it was a gradually dawning thing if you understood what was going on. Uh, near the end, um, Felicity's character, Amelia, says something to the effect of um, not looking at the world, but how you choose to live in it. Um, yeah. Do you think that's yeah. the theme of the movie? And do you think the theme affected your editing in some way? I think for me, this, the, the key story was her being able to come back and live in the world really is that, you know, when we find her, her earliest in terms of story time, in terms of story timeline, you know, she's, she's asleep on, on her floor in a kind of with nail and eye flat where, you know, there's kind of wine glasses everywhere and bottles of wine and, and she's, you know, she doesn't want to leave her house. Uh, you know, it's a, it feels like a, a, a very modern story where she's just, you know, she's obviously been widowed and, you know, is very down and just, you know, doesn't want to engage with the world anymore. And I'm sure we've had all our days like that, but it's James is the person she doesn't realize she needs to meet to, to redeem her and, and to kind of get her back on track and get her back engaged with the world. And it feels like that's the story that by the end she can, she can rediscover who she is and put Pierre, you know, to bed in the past and that she could be running up a hill with her nieces and bringing that adventuring spirit to everyone else really. So I think that was that was definitely a, th- a strong through line that we that we, that we had, and um, you know I'm sure Jack was you know all over. Uh, this far into your relationship with Tom, and after doing five features and a couple of shorts, has your collaboration method changed, or how do you two collaborate? I think it's probably changed just in terms of you know just now we've got such similar taste. We probably did have such similar taste. I think when we started out, I think that's that's probably 
the overwhelming thing that gives you a relationship with a with a director or hopefully with an editor as well in terms of you just share a taste so it doesn't it's not it's, it's never really a style i think the style's kind of dictated by the material and you know what what the film is but we do have extremely similar tastes in kind of takes or uh, you know when to cut or you know performance and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a subtly evolving thing. If anything, it's just more of a shorthand. You can move faster without speech because you just kind of instinct, I kind of instinctively know how he would want something cut. And, and I would also, you know, generally, you know, that would be my instinct of how to cut something. So we, we just have a shorthand where we can just move faster, I think, and, uh, you know, and probably be more candid quicker. I think when, you know, when you work with someone for the first time, you you obviously feeling your way into the relationship and just working out what the, the other person's taste is. And that once, you, once you've been working with someone for a while, then, you know, that need to be, you know, to just be, you know, feel your way into a relationship doesn't exist anymore. And you can just be very candid and very straight and kind of know the, how the ground lies straight away. So that's that's kind of a great thing. When you were cutting the flashbacks in, we kind of talked about on the macro scale and you know, when should those things happen, maybe earlier so that you're more invested in the characters. What about on the micro scale? When you were deciding the exact moment, were you finding a character, you know, having a look in their eye or was there a, something about a specific part of a conversation that you felt this would be a good time for this specific flashback? Yeah, I mean, it very much, we, we felt it needed, maybe it's an obvious thing to say, but it very much came from the characters and, you know, at what point you wanted more information about them. So the flashbacks probably weren't such a micro level thing in terms of a take or it was more, there were more longer story arc questions about when you wanted information about the characters and what kind of information you wanted at that point. So um, I think the micro was more about just how to finesse the actual transition, you know, of what was the what was the most effective way to move from the, the present balloon flight into the past, and which which timeline to jump back to, or or whether to jump back to the ground. Uh, that was, I, I suppose, that was that felt like a much more macro storyline decisions rather than than micro, and the micro was much more about just the most kind of effective, impactful way to do that, really. You know who to who who to cut from. You know what kind of size of shot, at what moment in the scene, really as well. Obviously, there was you know tri- dialogue trims here and there just to kind of work out okay what's the most impactful moment to kind of leave and and join another storyline. You also worked on a couple of great TV shows, um, The Crown, which I interviewed uh, yeah. Pia and uh, Una. Oh yeah, yeah, Pia, they're great, yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, working on uh, The Crown and Peaky Blinders. Oh, yeah. So The Crown was a delightful experience. It was, you know, I needed one episode of the, the first series, but because it was the first series, it was um, it was very exciting, a, a terrific bunch of editors, and, you know, obviously a lot of very, very good people involved in it. So it was a real, it was a real delight to work on. And, and, you know, and for TV, it had a very good budget. Obviously Netflix kind of had a, had a serious budget for it. And, and we were given a serious amount of time to get it right. So, yeah, we were all working together in, um, uh, in Soho, you know, we had kind of six or seven cutting rooms running simultaneously. And that's, that's a lovely thing about TV that you don't get in film, that 
film's obviously a much more solitary experience, but there's a real camaraderie, particularly because it was quite, you know, it was a civilised schedule that there's a real camaraderie that evolves between everyone and we could kind of watch each other's episodes and, you know, discuss things. And uh, it was, a, yeah, I remember it really fondly. That was cut at Moliere, maybe? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yes. Because uh, then you're even not only just with the other editors from your show, you're with the other, you're with other editors from other movies and other shows. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's, I mean, yeah, there's a few, there's, you know, there's a few bigger facilities who still have quite a lot of cutting rooms. And that is, you know, when I was assisting, that seemed to be the case when there'd be just, you'd meet a lot of people on corridors and, and that was a, that was a wonderful thing. You just bump into people. And then it seemed to go through a few years where there was a lot of smaller facilities that kind of shrank and, and, you know, you wouldn't bump into people so much. And now actually, again, in, in Soho, there seems to be some bigger places with, you know, 40, 50 rooms where you'd, you know, you'll get a floor somewhere. I've just recently been working with the Crown. You know, series three was on one floor, and Armando Nucci's new series is on another floor. And there's a couple of features in there. So there's a lot of interesting people in the building, and that's that's a that's a great thing. Uh, you mentioned the schedule on that and how the schedule was uh, reasonable. Do you feel like there's any difference anymore between cutting TV and cutting film? What are what's the diff- You know, cutting a feature. The gap is getting closer now. You know, uh, the gap is definitely shrinking um, because I think TV programs are getting way more ambitious. They're getting much better budgeted. And, you know, and probably films are going, you know, one of two ways. They're either going smaller budget or much bigger budget. So TV is kind of occupying all the middle ground, which it probably is, is the right thing to do in terms of telling longer stories and, you know, longer character arcs. Um, so I definitely, I think when I was making the transition from assisting into editing tv schedules were probably combined with my inexperience of just starting the tv schedules are very tight the budgets are very tight uh, the demands are very high i think now that's still the case but actually you have more time to get it right and you know there is the possibility of doing pickups and things like that or pickups in later blocks to kind of just work out the, the story arcs of the whole series so it is definitely a more satisfying experience, I think, TV now. I think because there's a lot of big, wealthier players moving in as well in terms of, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Apple and Google. And there's a lot of uh, people with a will to make interesting projects at a, at a good budget level, which definitely, I think it felt like for about 10 years, wasn't there. It was, it was just hard, really. Yeah, it's an exciting time. I, I kind of say that to assistants, you know, it's a great time. It's a, it's a great time to be making the leap because there's a lot of shows around at the moment and there's a lot of need to, to cut stuff and, you know, interesting stuff to cut. You know, there's not, a, there's not a paucity of fantastic drama out there. There's kind of too much, isn't it, at the moment? Uh, I'm still looking at the pictures behind the, you know, the images of the stills on your storyboard behind you. Tell me a little bit about what the advantage is of seeing them up there because obviously they're, in your timeline, you know, but how, what does it do for you to have them on a board and to be able to move them and be inspired by seeing stills on a board? Mm. Well, I think I think it's just a way of, of, you know, it's just data visualization, really. Is that obviously in the average, you're just looking at a timeline, and it's very hard to get an overview of the film in the average. You know, it's it's very easy, you know, to to move stuff around and play with stuff, but in terms of just psychologically getting a, a perspective on the whole film. I can't imagine doing a project without having seen cards now. 
just because I think it gives you an overview of the whole film. And often it's very hard to see a problem just looking at the avid screen, you know, whereas actually when you get an overview of the whole of Act One and you're thinking, oh, why is Act One not quite working at the moment, you know, and then you can just visually look through the scene cards and think, oh, there's a, okay, this is all working, you know, the first 10 minutes are working. Then there's a thorny bit between 10 and 20 minutes and then the 20 to 30 is working well. And it's, I think, just in terms of looking at story beats and kind of working out how they join together and if they're the right distance from each other. And maybe it's partially my psychology as well. It's just easier to get an overview of a, of a big section of the film in terms of how the story beats join together and structurally how the film is working and, you know, which big sections work really well and which and then where the problems are you smack into. And then often just by staring at the wall, you, you know, for long enough, you kind of come up with a bizarre solution that occasionally is right, <laughs> kind of that works. So I, I just find it's an invaluable way. I think the more ways you can look at a film differently, the better. I even think just looking at it, you know, watching it on a different monitor in a different room actually is actually quite helpful that you get into a kind of habitual way of viewing something. Um, what one editor told me once that they used to flip the film over in, on the old steam decks so they'd actually just you know watch it in a different way so you could still see whether the film worked but it was just you know flopped and I think that's there's a lot to be said for that it's just forcing yourself to watch things in a fresh way like I'll always force myself to watch the film you know mute with no sound at all and I think that's invaluable where you start to see things in a different way and then like and also listen just listen to the film so turn off the video and just listen to the film. Then you, you can often see where the pace, you know, lags or where dialogue scenes are a bit loose. It's just it's just different techniques for kind of fooling yourself into watching things afresh for the first time. I think any any of those devices or tricks like scene cards or watching the film silent are absolutely invaluable because it's just trying to get yourself to, to be the first audience again and, and freshen yourself up. And, and then problems just rise to the surface incredibly quickly then, I think, when you when you freshen things up and you suddenly, the scales fall from your eyes and you suddenly realise, oh, we've got some big problems there that we, can, we need to sort out. The other thing that people point out when you go to another room is if it's another room that doesn't have the controls of the Abbot, you don't have the urge to hit the pause button, you know, the space bar yeah, button, right? You, there's nothing you yeah. can do but watch it as an audience would. You know? Yes, and that, that's why screenings are invaluable as well, that just actually going and sitting in a cinema, one, just seeing it in a different context on a big screen is invaluable, but then also just sitting, often just getting 20 friends and family in there, those screens are invaluable as well, just because part half of it is the feedback but half of it is actually just being forced to sit in a room with 20 you know people and and really feel it feel the experience with them and then there's nothing better than that for like knowing where you've got pace problems or you know certain issues or you know bits of comedy aren't working or or are overdone or or people are missing you know don't understand things so yeah i think the de decontextualizing stuff is, is absolutely paramount and I'm assuming you pull your assistants in for that kind of early feedback. Yeah, yeah, very much. They're, they're, they're always the, the people who give you feedback first and, you know, hopefully in a candid way. I'm working with assistant Kelly Allen at the moment, who's always very candid and great for feedback you know, in terms of work, you know, watching it for the first time and then just giving you a total audience response. So Do you ever have cut scenes, your assistants cut scenes that either you've already cut 
just to maybe give you a new look at a scene or yeah totally we've just done this on on the current film i'm working on actually kelly's just been cutting out a courtroom scene which is quite a tricky courtroom scene and it's just that's very very useful for just generating ideas and and then it's also useful for us to just to talk about afterwards about why she's made certain decisions and you know discuss about why i've made certain decisions and i think that's a really useful you know it's very useful for me you know in terms of you know why she's made certain decisions it's like oh that's interesting or then me having to justify why i've made certain decisions as well. yeah exactly that's an excellent point it's just how how are you making the decisions and if you can explain it to somebody else sometimes when your explanation doesn't work out you're like maybe this <laughs> i didn't have this thought of yeah. maybe i'm talking nonsense here but <laughs> having, having to articulate it is uh, is invaluable it also forces you to think more deeply about certain things that you're like, okay, if I need to, I need to actually try and articulate why I made certain decisions and you actually start self-questioning a bit more. The process of just cutting the scene is such a small part of cutting the movie, right? Because then you're forced with all these larger story questions that have nothing to do with the editing of one particular scene. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that's just a kind of learning experience that of seeing things at a bigger and bigger layer level. I think when you start out, you spend a lot of time trying to get this, the, the micro right, of like trying to get the actual scene right and getting a scene working. But actually, you know, if the scene's in the wrong place or it doesn't fulfill a story function and just needs to be cut, you know, you can waste a, you can waste a week on a section of the film that's, you know, fiddly and tricky to cut. But actually, you actually need to work out, if, is, is the scene in the right place? You know, is it, is it, is it the most impactful place for it? Is it the right length? Is it, does it fulfill the right function? What, what function should that scene fulfill? And so actually you can be setting off on a micro level, you know, spending a lot of time actually, you know, not, not wasting time, but actually when actually that time would be better used actually working out the slightly more macro structures of the film and whether you need this whole section or whether it's in the right place. But that's that's a real learning curve, you know, just something I'm learning and still learning of, you know, the, the, the longer arcs of a film and exactly how they all interlock. How do you watch dailies and what is your approach to a blank timeline? Are you a selects guy or are you making notes, putting in locators? How are you approaching a fresh scene when somebody just dumps a bunch of dailies in your lap? I think that's a really interesting question. When I, when I started as an editor, I always wished more people had asked editors those questions because I think that that's, I'm now going to have a very boring answer but it's actually quite interesting that what do you what do you actually do when you when you open a bin when I started off I started making a lot of notes that I'd watch I'd watch just watch all the dailies and make a lot of notes but I don't know I, I don't know after a few years I realized that just it wasn't for me it wasn't the most effective way of doing things that um, I assisted, you know, a couple of great editors, John Wilson, who got Billy Elliott and Chris Gill, who worked with Danny Boyle a lot. And, and I kind of, I kind of went back to kind of what, what they would do in terms of, you know, w- working on film. Of John used, you know, obviously would work in a trim bin and get little bits of all the trims that he would like and put them in a trim bin. And so I started kind of doing the same kind of electronically. Just when I go through, I'll, you know, have have all the selects reel. One thing I do as well, which is I think is probably unusual, is. I asked my assistant to join all the rushes together in reverse order. So I'll watch take 16 first before I watch take one. So I'll watch like take 16, 15, 14, 13. So then I'm, I know I've seen what probably what the director thinks is the best take. And then I'm kind of auditioning all the other takes against that. So I kind of watch it in reverse order. So 
And then rather than making specific notes on on takes, because I found it was quite just just a bit limiting for me of trying to articulate good bits, because often a good bit is a, is the smallest micro reaction, or you know, it's very it's not a line, it's not even a reaction to a line. It's some little weird thing that you know that someone an actor's done that's fascinating or, or feels as though it's going to be really useful. So now I just rip out all the little interesting bits, both performance bits, reactions, other quirky bits, and just basically steal all the good stuff from the rushes and join that into a kind of rough order. So I've got a kind of selects reel that's roughly in the right uh, time orientation. So then I can just watch that and see, okay, there's some interesting stuff here. This is kind of where the meat of the scene is. These are the interesting reactions. This is the kind of the nub of it that's the kind of focus point of the scene and that that seems to work much better for me than trying to make notes which then I, I found didn't translate it felt like a kind of introducing another kind of intermediary in the process that I kind of just felt quite like working from the timeline rather than trying to articulate it in language and then go back to the rushes and go back to those bits and choose them but maybe that's just because I've grown up in the electronic age though because I know some of the older editors just have probably much better memories in terms of being able to memorize six hours of dailies or but I, I find, you know, I just, I, otherwise I'm worried I miss stuff if I don't do that. So that, that's my, that's the way I generally work. And then I'll kind of winnow that selects reel down into more of a shape of a scene. So it's a slower way to work, but it's kind of more thorough. So sometimes if, if there's a demand for the director to see scenes very quickly, you know, in the afternoon or a big old scene that they've done loads of cameras on and they need to know what they need to shoot, then obviously I have to kind of work in a different way. And then I just attack it and get everything into a rough structure and work out if we've got everything. But if there's, if there's less of a pressure on a you know, dialogue scene where we basically know we've got everything, then I'll try and be more thorough straight away and really do, do a deep dive. You're obviously at the mercy of the crew, though, so you, you have to respond to, oh, do they need to know? what other pickups do we need to do this afternoon in that location before we wrap that location? So you're, you're constantly, you know, responding and ducking and diving around them. But that, that's my preferred way where you get a bit of time to deep dive quite quickly. Um, everybody says they watch all the dailies eventually, but a lot of people say when you're actually cutting, you know, during production that maybe you just look at one or two circled tapes yeah. or the last take and, and that's all you have time for because you want to cut the scene quickly and then you can go back later and yeah exactly yeah like i say like there's certain days like certain days or weeks and aeronauts i was doing that like that whole opening scene where obviously there's a pressure on to know what do we need you know on the following day it's like what are we shooting the next day what have we what have we missed that then you just have to go into a totally different mode of like okay um, yeah, exactly that, where you're just kind of looking at selects and putting it into shape and going, have I got everything? If I haven't got everything, then I'm going through, all, you know, at high speed through the non-selects, looking for all the other bits to fill in all the gaps. Um, and so you have to just be very aware of what the crew are up to, really, and what's needed from you, really, at that point. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for giving me so much of your time today. I hope oh, it's great I, to talk. I yeah. hope your current project is uh, going well. And uh, Yeah, no, enjoying it a lot, yeah. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's great. Great to have a chat. Thanks for, thanks for getting in touch. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Eckersley. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, 
Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.